Good afternoon and welcome to the 149th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will talk about the Coronavirus Task Force with Olivia Troy. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, October 15th, 2020, there are 1,093,921 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7,927,975 cases in the United States, and that's up from 7,870,653 cases reported yesterday. There are now a total of 217,155 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 216,169 yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 victims and I'd like to continue that now. Headline, how many 9-11 survivors have died of COVID-19? At least 42 and likely many more. This appeared in The City Online by Ashley Rodriguez and Beatriz Mylart, September 10th. Michael Field arrived at the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, shortly after the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers. The Fire Department of New York Emergency Medical Technician wound up working at Ground Zero for nine months he later suffered from rheumatoid arthritis and pulmonary issues, conditions that his wife, Stacy Field, attributed to his work digging through the rubble as the rescue operations quickly turned to a long-term recovery effort. They were told everything was fine down there, she told the city. A week after the attack, then-Federal Environmental Protection Agency boss Christine Todd Whitman said that the air is safe to breathe, a 2003 report from the Office of Inspector General found the EPA did not have enough information to make that assertion. While Field, who lived in Valley Stream on Long Island, fought his illnesses after serving at Ground Zero, 19 years later, COVID-19 got the best of him. He died on April 8th at the age of 59, leaving behind his wife and three adult sons, Stephen, Richie, and Jason. He's far from the only 9-11 first responder or survivor taken by the pandemic. Officially, 42 have died of COVID-19, according to the World Trade Center Health Program, but advocates, lawyers, and World Trade Center Health Program officials say the actual toll is likely much greater. In April, the city reported that the World Trade Center Health Program, administered by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and funded through the James Zadroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act, had not been monitoring the outbreak's impact on its 79,000 enrolled first responders and more than 26,000 survivors. They've since started counting. In the past six months, at least 1,300 people who worked or lived at or near Ground Zero and other 9-11 sites have contracted COVID-19. It is challenging to get a precise tally of infections and deaths. At the beginning of the pandemic, only those who saw or contacted healthcare providers affiliated with the World Trade Center Health Program were counted, officials said. Stephanie Stevens, a spokesperson for Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, which oversees the program, said clinics later began calling members who fell into the CDC's high-risk category for complications from COVID-19. Now the World Trade Center Health Program clinics are scheduling monitoring exams that they hope will help them learn the COVID-19 status of enrollees, she said. Michael Field was one of the many members of the World Trade Center Health Program but it's unclear whether his death is reflected in the 42 logs so far. And the 105,000 total people enrolled in the health program account for only a quarter of the estimated population exposed to toxic dust after the attacks. Of those tracked, 55% have developed a 9-11 related illness and 2,955 have died before the pandemic. An additional 541 died between March 31st of this year and June 30th, according to the CDC. 
An estimated 400,000 people were exposed to 9-11 toxic dust, of whom only a quarter had been screened for 9-11 related illnesses. Through public records, news reports, and tributes on social media, the city identified two dozen 9-11 survivors and first responders who died of COVID-19, at least 11 of whom suffered from a 9-11 related illness, such as cancer or respiratory ailments. Peter Peñato, a Queens resident who immigrated from Cyprus, was overseeing renovations at his diner G. Wiz, just a few blocks north of the World Trade Center when the planes struck the towers. According to his family, he survived the attack and continued to run G-Wiz on Greenwich Street. About eight years later, he developed scleroderma, a hardening of muscle tissue in his lungs. He qualified for the Victim Compensation Fund and used an oxygen machine for three years while being placed on an organ transfer waiting list. In 2013, Paniotto underwent a successful bilateral lung transplant, which required him to take strong immunotherapy suppressants. Paniotto went on with his life, designing things in the house he had built, raised five kids in, and where he still lived in Astoria with his wife when the pandemic struck in March. Paniotto was 65 and his family knew of his health risk. He was taking precautions at the beginning when everything was going on, his daughter Margaret Paniotto told the city, but he had to still be at the restaurant. It wasn't like we were having the quarantine yet. He was diagnosed on March 23rd. Two days later, he went back to the hospital with a high fever and was sent home with a prescription for a dermal patch and hydroxychloroquine. According to his daughter, he took the first dose but awoke the next morning unable to breathe. His family called 911 and he was taken to Mount Sinai Queens Hospital in Astoria. Paniotto was intubated, placed on a ventilator and heavily sedated for 10 days. He died at the age of 65 on April 5th. Paniotto is survived by his wife and five children. He was there at Gee Whiz 24 hours. He was there more than he was home. The Tribeca community, his workers, the customers that came in, that was his family, said Margaret Peniotto. He was a very caring person. He didn't deserve this. Okay, I'd like to turn to our discussion for today and I'm very excited to speak with Olivia Troy, let me introduce her. Olivia Troy is a risk management and national security executive with 20 years of government service and private sector experience, most recently serving as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Pence at the White House, where she focused on tracking imminent and evolving domestic and international security threats, natural disaster events, and managing complex policy decisions and responses to large scale crisis events facing the American people. Prior to this role, she served in the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at the Department of Homeland Security as Chief of Strategy, Policy, and Plans. Olivia has also served on the leadership staffs in the Department of Defense, the National Counterterrorism Center, the Department of Energy, as well as in the private sector for organizations such as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, General Dynamics, Information Technology. Fluent in Spanish and hailing from El Paso, Texas, She's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, the National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs, and the Naval Postgraduate School. Olivia Troy, thanks so much for making time today to come on COVID Calls. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. I'm calling from the DC metro area and specifically Alexandria. And, you know, we're certainly seeing cases starting to increase a little bit, but for the most part, it's been, it's been stable. Unfortunately, uh, you know, with the White House outbreak, I'll be honest, we saw the DC uh, Health Department reporting that their case numbers increased significantly, but it was really just a result of what was going on in the White House, which was somewhat shocking and appalling on a personal level to me. So you're from El Paso, originally. I'm from Texas originally. I've got a lot of family back there and I get updates from them about the situation in Texas. You still have family back in Texas too? I do. I have a lot of family and they're actually on the border. They're still in El Paso, Texas, which is actually seeing a resurgence of, of COVID and they've been a hot spot for quite some time and I think they're heading that direction again. Everybody in your family is holding up okay despite that pressure? They are, but you know, my mom is in her mid seventies and she's lonely I and mean, she's by herself. She's been isolated for quite some time. We, 
I have family that, you know, will go visit her, but it's just not the same. And I, uh, you know, my father passed away in my twenties. I miss her and I haven't been able to see her since last Thanksgiving. And I just can't risk traveling to her. And I'm, you know, I can't, I'm scared that I would somehow contract the virus and not know and, and put her at risk. And I just, I don't want to do that to her. So we zoom, uh, zoom is hard for her. I'm sure other Americans can relate to that. She's not, you know, technology has evolved significantly in her lifetime and she's not all that familiar with how to work her iPhone too well. And so we always rely on, on others to kind of talk her through it or help her set it up so that I can, I can see her and that she knows that, you know, we're still here, even though I can't hug her or, or really, really be with her. So it's going to be a while, I think. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I've had the same experience, you know, usually this time of year, I'd be making a trip down there to go to a UT football game. Uh, my family has University of Texas tradition, and uh, we're not going to do that this year and wouldn't even know how to go about doing it. Um, you know, how much time would be required in quarantine and, and like you're describing, the, the Zoom calls, you know, get us through, but that distance is so, a, a distance I used to think was so close is now incredibly far. I want to, uh, um, just to get a sense of your of your background, I know you're know, reading a little bit about your background in government service, that September 11 was a kind of a defining moment for you and the decision you made to enter government service. And you know, reading that obituary that I read about the the lingering effects of 9-11 all the way into the COVID-19 era, we still, almost 20 years later, still grappling with that. Can you tell us a little bit about what made you decide to do the work that you do? Well, I started on the Hill and it was more on the political side of the House. I was at the Republican National Committee and it was right during 9-11. I remember walking home from the RNC on the Hill and I walked all the way out, for those that know the area, to Boston in Arlington, Virginia, which is quite the hike when you're when you're on foot from um, the hill on Washington, Capitol Hill on Washington, DC. And I remember walking past the Pentagon and really just being just shocked and saddened and trying to process it all. And I had ma I majored in political science at Penn and I was tracking international and foreign relations very closely. It's something that I, I certainly was interested in. And after 9-11, I decided that I wanted to be more on the policy, national security and defense side of the house rather than on the political campaigning side of the house. And that's sort of where my career trajectory takes me in. I, I, I get a job at the Pentagon and mm -hmm. um, begin my career there. So you were already, I mean, you were making that decision to enter government service right at the time that the Department of Homeland Security itself was being formed. Correct. Right, so you, you were there from the beginning then. Yes, I certainly saw it sort of developed. I saw a lot of the operations overseas. Uh, I saw you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, all of this kind of come together in the aftermath of 9-11 and then continued working in the counterterrorism space and focused on the Middle East region as well, as well as the global war on terrorism uh, the entire time. One of the things that's been pointed out in, in these last six months is that uh, President Bush took a, an interest in pandemic and in bioterrorism. And President Obama did as well take an interest in pandemic preparedness. And we've heard, I think, a fair amount, although I think we should probably hear more about that pandemic preparedness team that uh, the administration, the Trump administration decided not to, not to continue with. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, if you had any interaction with uh, bioterrorism, bioterrorism preparedness or pandemic preparedness in your time at DHS before this year? I didn't actually. I was most fo mostly focused on the intel intelligence component, which dealt more on the executive orders coming out of the administration. And, and actually for DHS, it was more focused on border security uh, and refugees and things like that. So I, I was not working in that space prior to coming to the White House. I was certainly familiar with the National Security Council's directorate and was familiar with the staff that was there. And I do remember them closing the office and redistributing or reorganizing the staff. And I, I worked with the bioterrorism directorate once I, once I came to the White House and was on the vice president's team. Were you surprised that that task force was was shut down or is that kind of a normal redistribution that happens when a new administration comes in? 
I think every administration comes in and analyzes, you know, where their priorities are, where their policy priorities are, and their national security priorities. And in this White House, they were really focused. It was immigration and border, and that was that was where they were they were they were going. And so I think it's it's normal to see a reorganization of the, the National Security Council and and have redistribute staff in this situation. I think. Uh, you know, you saw them sort of by attrition, uh, they were not filling, they were not mm -hmm. backfilling spots. And mm -hmm. to be honest, a lot of that was uh, the deep state narrative. There was mm -hmm. a concern that career people were the deep state and they were not going to be loyal to the administration. And it was talked about on the National Security Council. I've spoken with colleagues about their concern about that. And these are people that have dedicated their entire careers and to serve on the National Security Council, as as you can imagine, it's a big deal. It's a big honor. Sure. Everyone there takes it seriously. It's something you work for your entire career. Was that surprising me to bring up this issue of the deep state, um, which I mean, another way just to interpret that, as you just said, is people who have a lot of government service and experience. But is that something you'd heard before much in your work before 2017? No, I've never heard anything like that. I've never heard that reference before prior to uh, this administration. So, well, let's bring it up to, to COVID-19. So um, I guess I'd just like to start by finding out, you know, when did you first hear, when did the existence of the epidemic and pandemic first enter your consciousness? It was in, I would say it was around mid-January. Uh, I was going to meetings uh, interagency meetings with the uh, U.S. government and National Security Council was chairing these at the staffer level and getting convening the interagency and trying to understand what was happening. I remember, I remember it so clearly because I remember coming back from the holidays and thinking I'm going to have a little bit of downtime. January is usually a slower month where, you know, government kind of gets back into gear. And I remember thinking, oh, it's an election year. They're not going to really, you know, we were told actually that don't be offended, you know, it, there won't be a lot of focus on national security or mm. issues. It's more domestically focused. And so for me, I was still gonna be busy because I had the domestic portfolio out of the team. I was a homeland person. And a lot of those issues, domestic policy crosses a lot, right? Like mass shootings and mm. natural disasters, that's all domestic facing. Uh, so I remember thinking that it was going to be somewhat of a more like slower relaxing month for me as long as a mass shooting didn't happen because i've been on call for 24 hours for a year for two years now and in mid-january it became very clear that this was going to be a completely different environment than i was looking <laughs> looking forward towards this year and we were aware uh, that there was a situation developing in wuhan i don't think that we really had a big understanding uh, in mid-January, what we were really, what we were really facing, and that goes on to evolve in time. That's that's something that I've been trying to get my mind around is um, the ways that our government keeps tabs on emerging diseases in other countries. I mean, we know the World Health Organization plays its role, but of course, if you perceive disease and pandemic as a security threat. Um, which I think we have in this country for, for quite a long time, then what kind of tools do we have to assess those threats? Well, the NSC, the National Security Council, I mean, they do keep tabs of what's going on globally. I know that there was a big working group on Ebola and watching what was happening in Africa and in different regions on that. And they certainly were tracking it very closely and there were discussions had on, you know, support and making sure that we were supporting this effort internationally and tracking it closely. And so I think, and certainly, you know, if we have the pandemic flu plan, we have efforts like that. We've had exercises, the Crimson Contagion, I'm sure that right. you've heard of. Sure. We've practiced, we've, we've exercised this as a government. Uh, I've been in those exercises. Uh, but I don't think that we ever really, I don't think we ever expected or were prepared for a pandemic of this magnitude. That's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the Crimson Contagion and we'll come back to this because there's a lot of assumptions that go into those kind of um, tabletop exercises. And one of them is um, continuity of executive interest, to put it 
politely that the president is engaged and that there's certain kinds of things you don't have to worry about falling apart. I think we'll, we'll probably come to come to that. But it's interesting you say that the the plans are there and the, the exercises have been done, but nothing to this scale that you were aware of, no planning it to this scale. Right. I mean, we I don't think we ever expected. I mean, I think there were a lot of unknowns with this virus that really threw the group for a loop. You know, the fact that it was uh, the rate of spread mm-hmm. and not having access into Wuhan, I will say, did hurt us for a while because we we couldn't get on the ground. They kind of held us off for a few weeks. It took weeks for CDC to have access to get a team in. And we were asking for it. I remember Secretary Azar sitting at every task force meeting. You know, we were meeting before it was officially a task force and right. saying, we really need them to give us access. Do we need... Who do we need to advocate more? They've tried every avenue. Does the president need to write? Like, what what do we need to do to be able to go in and testify with ourselves and really see firsthand what's happening? So those discussions were happening in in January before the, the task force takes shape. folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking today with Olivia Troy about the coronavirus task force. So let's turn to that. Um, As we're going into late January and February, can you just remind me the timeline of the formation of the White House coronavirus task force? So you'll see the first, I'll say, iteration of it because he later evolves with the vice president. And it's announced in late January. And it is, for the most part, the same members remain on the task force when the vice president gets announced that he will be leading it in late February, about a month later. And uh, but the membership did evolve and you'll see different people added uh, to it. And it was just meant to include, you know, economic advisors as well. We, we realized that there was no, no one there sitting in the room that could speak to the economics of it. There was no one. And so we felt that we need to be more inclusive and we added Dr. Hahn from the FDA into the meetings and other people. And so we added a lot of other departments in HHS to attend the task force directly. What were some of those early meetings like? I can only imagine that the the sense-making process, even as you described, you know, trying to get information from China and then as it's becoming clear, as it's spreading throughout Europe, particularly in Italy, what, I mean, I guess I just kind of want to know as a fly on the wall, what happens in that room? I mean, it was, it was pretty chaotic, to be honest. I, it was, we were getting hit from all angles on what we were going to have to focus on and respond to. So we were looking at the virus and we were watching it spread and we were watching what was happening in Wuhan. And then we see them shut down the city, which was right, what the right, right thing to do. But we kept thinking, well, how many people have left Wuhan already and where have they traveled to and how far has it spread already and we were wrestling with you know how many of these travelers have come to the u.s and how many how many travelers are traveling from china to the u.s which is a fairly large amount Mm -hmm. uh, on a daily basis and thinking about where how are we going to do the contact tracing can we do the contact tracing and you know cruise ships i mean there were so many people stuck on cruise ships and how are we going to get them to dock and how do we evacuate them? And it was the first time we'd, I think, quarantined people, mandatory quarantine of Americans in right. I think 50 years. I mean, that is something right. we had never faced. And I, I have to tell you, you people don't, people underestimate everything that goes into that. We're mm. talking, there's negotiations with the governors, there's negotiations with the mayors, there's negotiations with the Department of Defense. Then you got to figure out how you're going to transport these people. How do you transport them safely? How do you not contaminate everybody that you're trying to transport together? How do you, it's just layer after layer after layer while trying to figure out what the virus is doing. And, you know, and then we start to look at PPE, right? And <laughs> we realize we are going to have a shortage. There's no way. And we're watching other countries start to, have a shortage and we're watching what's happening globally and we're watching it spread. And then we're like, 
do we need to do travel restrictions to another region? So that's, you know, this is all happening all at once. And it's the same people. It's the same resources, it's the same cabinet, same experts, same doctors, all juggling these problems and risk. So help me understand the leadership aspect of this. Um, Vice President Pence, for example, is charged with the leadership. Um, when does he actually become like really engaged with it? Immediately. When Immediately. he gets, I mean, when he gets charged to lead the task force, he he is all in, right? He has been handed this this enormous problem set, I would say, that I had been tracking for him mm-hmm. for a month and a half previously. And when he got tapped, I mean, he, he knew we had a monumental task ahead of us and he was going to have to figure out how to steer the ship on this with knowing that there would be challenges down the road, especially politically and the dynamics that would come his way. And we, we were, I mean, there's no winning in this situation because every day people are hurting, people are getting sick and people are dying. There's no upside to this thing at all, right? You're either gonna do your best and try to do it to the best that you can, but Americans are still gonna hurt. So Pence's role has been overshadowed naturally throughout this. I'm curious to know, you know, everything you just laid out, the epidemiological puzzle, the legal puzzles, the um, the logistics puzzles, all playing out in real time. I'm assuming in February you didn't sleep. What what were the kinds of issues that the vice president were most was most interested in? What were the kinds of questions that he was asking you? You know, I think early on, I saw him right off the bat say, "We got to fix this testing." We gotta fix this testing problem. This is insane, like what is going on? We're the United States and we're watching other countries seem to be ramping up their testing. And you know, at the beginning, I'm sure you've heard this, the CDC test wasn't working. Right. And we had relied on that. And that was a big failure right off the bat, right at the start of it. And then it became, you know, we were watching hospitals in Italy. We did a lot of the modeling that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci were looking at. We were really doing comparisons with Italy and watching what was happening there. And we were concerned at watching the hospitals get overwhelmed and looking at what they were struggling with. And we were concerned about access to ventilators. And you hear the administration talk a lot about that uh, as as time passes, right? You mm-hmm. And you'll hear the vice president say, no American had to go without a ventilator that needed one. And, and that's true. I mean, we did do the Defense Production Act and that was a big focus uh, to get that done. And so there were things like that where I saw him engaged and from very early on and he is the one that starts the weekly governor's calls because mm. he'd been a governor and he i think he brought good perspective in that angle to say this is you know he knew how they would be approaching it he knew what they would be thinking about in terms of that at the state level and i saw him reach across both sides of the aisle i remember early conversations with governors where it was mutually agreed upon that this should not be political, that this was a crisis and we needed to work, all of us needed to work together to get through it. Unfortunately, you see that get derailed along the way. So the first death uh, was reported in New York City, I think March 1st, right around then, and start to see the death count pick up in, in New York and in New Jersey, the Northeast, and then urban centers after that, not long after. So March, March is obviously a crucial, is a crucial month. And there was, there's a story that came out in September uh, in Vanity Fair, which talks about, sort of paints a picture that there's a multiple, that there's a coronavirus task force that you're part of. But then there's this other sort of shadow task force that Jared Kushner is leading. And the way the article frames it is, there's a crucial moment there in which Kushner has the president's attention, has Trump's attention, and says, you know, we can solve this problem. We can get the PPE. We can do everything we need. And in that sort of third week of March, it was still possible, even though things were looking bad in the Northeast, that it was possible. And then they took the decision, now we're going to leave this to the states to do it. Um, And it's been reported in a few outlets that that late March was a sort of crucial moment. 
I guess, first of all, I'd like to know what you what you make of that narrative and then also uh, hear more from you about the other players involved here. The coronavirus task force was not the only entity calling the shot, clearly. Well, we struggled with it to have other entities sort of pop up that way because then it became a question of, okay, well, how is that entity coordinating and playing ball, so to speak, with the main White House task force that the, pre- that the vice president's trying to lead? And how are we all working together towards the same purpose, right? And that is critical. That's strategic operational planning, which I've done a lot of 101 on how you implement and you have a strategy from the top. And I guess that's what struck me. There was no strategy. There was no overarching strategy on how we were going to execute who was going to do what. It was sort of, and that's why I say it was, it remained chaotic. And you have all these sort of separate efforts happening. And in terms, I mean, I think Jared Kushner, you know, I, I do think he's an intelligent, intelligent guy. And he was thinking outside the box. He was trying to lean on the private sector extensively. I think that is a world that the Trump family comes from. That is a world that they are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for us as Americans, government and the processes of how the government functions well is not a world that they're familiar with. And they had a number of resources at their disposal, but they chose to go outside the process. And that is where you see this sort of get derailed along the way. And you're bringing in volunteers who have no familiarity with government contracting, or you know, they're just kind of reaching and grasping mm. for straws. And these are the same people that are responsible for finding PPE globally. And we're fighting for it globally. And we're not the only ones fighting the pandemic, sure. right? We're, right? Every country has been affected by this. And we're all trying to access the same mats, the same gowns. And that's where I think we get into a really precarious situation, right? Because we don't, we don't manufacture these items domestically. And that's where we end up it, fighting for it. And we end up, you know, bidding for it. And the U.S. government ends up bidding, bidding for it. And right. we're fighting with our own companies domestically, like 3M, and trying to figure out, and, you know, it, it becomes a very ugly scenario very quickly. Well, let me ask you about Trump. I mean, did you get the opportunity to make that argument to him that, of course, the private sector is a player, but honestly, this is a national disaster on a scale we have not seen in a hundred years in this country, or maybe since World War II, the United States government will have to be the master organizer and logistics expert in, in this. Did you get a chance to to brief him on, on that kind of an issue? I think, I, I think task force members and uh, leaders on the National Security Council, such as Matt Pottinger and others who understood the process and we'd all worked on other <laughs> other things together. I think tried and, but at the end of the day, we didn't, that's just not how this functioned. Well, I guess I just, I wanna follow up on that because it seems like there, I mean, there's, it's one thing to say that an administration can blow a disaster response. And we've seen that happen. The complexity of disaster response is real, even if you've done the, the preparations. And it's another thing to say though, that an administration is aware of certain options and it chooses not to exercise them. And I think, and I think you and others have characterized that the, this less is a failure and more is a, almost a political calculation or a political choice. And I want to put words in your mouth, but I'd like to, I wonder if you can comment on, on that because there's been other reporting that said, the president said, well, we'll just leave this to the states. This is a blue states issue. It'll sort itself out. It won't affect my election. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm asking you if that's true. So it is true. And that is where you see people on the task force struggle morally because we're watching what's happening. And it is a moral struggle to hang in in this situation because you're trying to hang in there to do the right thing. And we're all working hard and we're all working long hours. 
including every day, every, I think, I don't think I had, I took a day off until July. That was the first time I actually took a, a weekend day off. We worked every single day and that task force met daily, including on weekends. And I think the problem was the president, you know, we were in election year. He was very focused on that. And he was so focused on that. Well, the fact that he was so focused on that overshadowed everything else. And he didn't want ownership. I mean, we knew it wasn't going well. And the worse it got, and the more the cases increased, the worse it got in terms of the environment inside the White House and politically, because he didn't, he he knew that it was going to reflect poorly on him. And that's when you start to see the narrative, well, this is a state problem. Let the state solve the testing. Let them own this. And, you know, have them engage with the private sector and the PPE issues. Have them fend for themselves. And, you know, you see a struggle between FEMA, Administrator Gaynor, who I have a lot of respect for because I've worked with him on responses to hurricanes and national disasters. I mean, he knows, he knows how to run a response. And I'm grateful that he was actually that they had the wherewithal to include them because quite frankly, he should have been at the table from day one. I know that it's it's a struggle though, because you know, he would say, well, if a hurricane hits or a tornado hits, then I'm I'm tapped out, mm-hmm. right? I'm, 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 I'm balancing both, but really FEMA had the resources and the reach into the states to coordinate with the health departments and that, you know, governors are familiar with the FEMA concept. They're familiar on how right. it works and that kind of thing. So I'm grateful that at least that part was there, but FEMA can only do so much when the stockpile is being depleted quickly and resources are being sent out to states that may not necessarily be hotspots based on political bias. Mm -hmm. And that's when you see the red and blue state thing come into effect. And it was wrong. was very confusing from the outside and perhaps it was from the inside too to see sort of HHS as a lead agency and then FEMA brought in as a seemingly as a lead agency and then at some point it seems that FEMA's sort of demoted from that role and HHS comes back in i mean there's so much whiplash going on throughout this entire thing do you think they should have stuck with FEMA as a as a lead agency even into the summer you know i think that i think the thing is FEMA we were looking at hurricane season to be mm-hmm. honest. And mm-hmm. that is that is the problem with a pandemic of this magnitude, right? That is, the, that is what happens when you don't encourage people to wear masks and you're not slowing the spread of the virus because we can only handle so much at once and the system breaks. And FEMA was concerned about going into hurricane season because we weren't sure. We, were, we knew, you know, Noah had said we were going to have a it was going to be a rough season. We didn't know once the hurricanes man, made, made landfall, what that was gonna mean, how bad they were gonna be in terms of the magnitude of them. And so I think FEMA needed to refocus back to the natural disaster space. And therefore you see, you know, people made the decision that HHS would become the lead again because it's a health response and emergency. So that's where you see kind of the transition mm-hmm. happen. And that's basically the background on how that came to be. I see. Okay. So uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has emerged uh, for most Americans as a national hero through this. Um, and and as a emblematic of the essential workers and the medical professionals um, and the government you know, people in the trenches who are doing the work throughout this, who've tried to keep things going no matter what's happening at the top. And I've heard you speak movingly about Dr. Fauci. I wonder if you could say a little bit of what it was like to work closely with him. Uh, he, he's an amazing man. He's uh, humble and very genuine. Uh, I was really grateful to have his expertise and leadership at the table. And one thing about Dr. Fauci is he'll tell you how it is. Doesn't matter, you know. If you don't want to hear it, he's going to tell you. And he 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 was vocal about it, and he 
got pushed back, I watched him and it didn't matter. He didn't back down. And he would, you know, he would say, I, I think about him right now as we go into the winter, mm -hmm. because I remember him saying back in the spring, this is going to be bad if we don't get ahead of this. And with the flu combined, if we continue with a large daily rate of cases, which is where we're at right now. And I think he's, he's actually back on media doing everybody's talking about it again. Mm -hmm. We are going to have a serious problem on our hands and we're no better off now than we were back then we're, and, and I believe that he is right with that. So, you know, and he, I give him a lot of credit for not giving up because he was certainly treated in a manner that he didn't deserve. He was disrespected at times. He, his opinion was sometimes, you know, cut out. They didn't want him telling Americans. They didn't want him telling you all the truth. They didn't want Dr. Burks telling you the truth. Right. Because it didn't play to the narrative uh, coming from the very top. And that made their jobs very hard. And it was, it was hard for me to watch, you know, this is the first time I get to work with with doctors and medical experts and pandemic experts of this magnitude, right? I live in the Homeland Security and the national security space. Sure. And I'm used to, you know, intelligence operatives and intelligence leaders and Navy SEALs, and I have extreme respect for all of them. But I, it was a very eye-opening moment to be able to work side by side with these people and help them in a, in a way um, and contribute to this response. But watching them struggle when the White House itself is trying to discredit them and attack them publicly was not only demoralizing for them and me, but to the entire public health service standing behind them. And I feel like it has been a huge detriment to the public health agencies and to the CDC. I watch them work so hard and I have a lot of respect for the career scientists there and the doctors that have spent their entire careers preparing essentially for this moment, right? Preparing for quarantining. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know I got to know Dr. Marty Citrone. I think the world of him and I think he yelled at the top of his lungs till his, he was blue in the face saying, we've got a serious problem here. And he worked on the cruise ship evacuations mm -hmm. and I believed him. And it was very hard to watch the discrediting and politicization of these agencies in such a manner that I saw happen to the intelligence community, where I come from, it sort of the lens shifts now because now we're in a pandemic and the president's discrediting of the national security community then carries on. And now it's in the public health scope. And I think that we're gonna have quite, I feel bad for the CDC and, and the FDA and all of these people who have worked so hard and are there as career people and the leadership of them too, who struggled with this every day, I think that it has been detrimental for our government and it'll be, I think we're looking at something that will be prevalent for years to come. Well, your insight here is so crucial because what you've just described as a person with you know, 20 years in government and now you're in this task force in the, this disaster, literally slow disaster playing out and you're seeing all of the different aspects of it. Now, I, Trump, I guess I don't like to give him more credit than he's due. I, I worry about what kind of vulnerabilities there may have already been in government. You know, I mean, I think I wonder what you've thought about this too. I mean, he's an exceptionally poor leader. I, we haven't seen one this bad in American history. Um, and yet I, I guess this part of me has felt like it doesn't matter. We should still have this United States. We should have the resources there to persist in spite of bad leadership. I wonder what you think about that. What have you learned about the vulnerabilities there? Because that's the way we're going to move beyond this, I think. Correct. Well, you know, I think the backbone of the federal government and the commitment by a lot of these people is still there. And I know that that will hopefully prevail. But the, in this situation specifically, I think that we are dealing with an individual that is the circle of influence around him and he himself is so strong and so vindictive when you do speak out or you push back 
there's no room for that. So you're looking at someone who is running the White House like a dictator, hmm. to be honest. And, and I think that I think it's important for people to really take a step back and understand that because he may, you know, his followers think that it's just rhetoric. They think it's just how the president speaks, right? And that, you know, he's a businessman and he knows better and he's fixing everything in the country and he's draining the swamp. Well, no, that's not what happen what's happening behind closed doors. He's actually causing a lot of damage and he is detrimental and dangerous for our country at a level that we've never seen. And I think for those that don't live in the DC area who are, you know, emergency responders and things like that, I mean, he, he portrays this image of being, you know, non DC and a man of the people and he's fighting for the working class person. And, but he's so disconnected from from the reality of that. And I think that in this situation, it's very unfortunate that we are in the biggest, I mean, I would say the biggest pandemic of our generation with that person at the helm and in charge, because he has repeatedly shown that even in his own messaging and his behavior, even after getting COVID, he continues to message in a manner that is, you know, misinformation and and inaccurate. And so I think moving forward, I think, I hope that we will not have someone like this in office and these institutions will heal. But, you know, regardless, I mean, if we look at the immediate election and if Joe Biden wins, he, it's still going to be a pandemic and we are really behind and he will face an uphill battle on how to curb the virus and the spread of it. And he's still gonna wrestle with a lot of the issues we did. The only difference is hopefully he will be leading by example and it will change sort of the mass debate that we're seeing, right? And yeah. that behavior, because we need that to change because we don't have a vaccine yet. And we need the scientists and doctors to have time to develop that. You're listening to COVID calls. I have a couple minutes left with with Olivia Troy, really enjoying this conversation. I mean, enjoy isn't the right word, but I'm learning a lot in this conversation and, and thank you for sharing. And there's one thing I wanted to ask you, been, um, I think it was a maybe a commercial you had out, a statement you had out um, recently about your idea to target um, public health information to Latinos. I mean, once it became clear in April that this virus um, is affecting African-Americans, indigenous people, older people and Latinos disproportionately, that would have been the right moment um, for the government to target resources and surge resources into those communities. It didn't. It didn't happen. That that's something you've spoken out about. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you. I think the administration's official position would be, oh, you know, we opened up testing centers, and we pushed testing resources, and we were tracking the data of what was going on statistically, but we weren't doing enough. I'll flat out tell you that. And I remember having a two hour conversation with someone on the communications team saying, we need to be putting out messaging in Spanish and we need to be communicating in a manner that is relatable. You know, when we say slow the spread and we say social distancing, we need to be communicating on why it matters. And we need to be understanding the fact that in a lot of these families or lower incomes, it's multi-generational housing right? That, that, that adds a whole different layer. And a lot of these communities, it's all interconnected. It's all interrelated. A lot of them, you know, are working class. They are the bus drivers. They are, you know, the transportation people. They are the people working in the meatpacking facilities that where they're not able to socially distance and they need facial coverings to protect themselves. And then they go home and they leave, live in these communities that are in close quarters. And so it's all part of slowing the spread for the virus and it's all interrelated for the community, right? I mean, and it just seemed like such a lack of basic 101 understanding of how you communicate during an emergency. But from your perspective, and you said this earlier, I guess I just want to confirm because that doesn't somehow enter the calculation into electoral payoff, 
it was not, it couldn't enter Trump's consciousness that that was the right thing to do. Right, because at the end of the day, they were looking at his voting block. Yeah. Um, we're up on time with Olivia Troy. I know you have other interviews and things you have to do uh, to sneak a little half question in at the end. Will you re-enter government service? You know, I've always, <laughs> it's such a draw for me. Um, it's, I just, it's something that I've always been drawn to. It's my, I feel like it's my patriotic duty. And I think hopefully at the right time mm -hmm. with uh, the right leadership in place, um, I just felt very strongly that I just needed to separate myself completely. And certainly speaking out the way I have was never actually in my plans. I never, I never had a long-term plan, never had this planned out during the pandemic. Never had, you know, I was never the one person thinking about what it's, it's going to be for mean for my buck. I was literally so overwhelmed with work that I was just living yeah. day to day and moment to moment. And so we'll see, hopefully. I mean, I, my passion for protecting Americans and the love for my country is, is, is great. Well, hopefully at a time when we call it expertise and not the deep state, you'll have that opportunity. And uh, I, I just want to tell you, um, I want to say thank you. Um, and how impressed I've been and the courage that you've shown speaking out, as you said, uh, in the face of a vindictive, vindictive administration. And it's important to hear your voice at this time. And thanks for so patiently walking through that decision-making process there in the spring. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch us every weekday at 5 p.m. Tomorrow is the 150th COVID Calls. It's a brothers and sisters episode and you will get to meet my brothers and sisters. And we'll talk about what it's been like to be siblings and to be distant and dealing with childcare and everything else that brothers and sisters deal with. So please join me tomorrow at five o'clock and stay healthy. And thanks again, Olivia Troy. Thank you, Dr. Knowles.